Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sex and violence. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode one of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. October 13th, 1996. Marilyn native Sharon Lepatka tells her husband she is going to visit friends in Georgia for the week. Instead, she boards an Amtrak train in Baltimore with what one can only assume is a one-way ticket bound for Charlotte. Twelve days later, her bound body would be found buried under two and a half feet of soil. What transpired over the course of the investigation would expose the taboo underground world of a dark web, filled with sex, torture, bondage and a death wish. Born in 1961, Sharon Rena Denberg was one of six children to parents Abraham and Magda Denberg, who were Orthodox Jewish and members of the Beth Tefillah congregation. The congregation was founded in 1921 to serve the Forest Park neighbourhood of Baltimore City, Maryland. Sharon's father Abraham was a well-loved and respected cantor in the synagogue, a prestigious and important role to his brethren, leading the services in song and prayer and educating new members and those converting to Judaism. While her father held such notable responsibilities, the News and Observer wrote that Sharon was seen by her classmates as normal as you can get and that she was not considered to be an outcast. Sharon was part of her school sports team playing volleyball and field hockey and was also a member of the school's choir, a talent she obviously received from her father. But growing up in a strictly Hasidic Jewish upbringing of keeping kosher and keeping the Sabbath would turn this seemingly normal young woman into a rebel. Sharon was a member of the 1979 graduating class of Pikesville High School 
and ironically from the years 1985 through 1987, Sharon worked for the FBI in Washington, D.C., in the unit that helps identify fingerprints and other evidence in criminal cases. Against her family's blessing, she married Catholic construction worker Victor Lepatka on April 28, 1991, some say as a means to break away from the strict confines of her family and religion. But contrasting religions were not the couple's only differences. Sharon was a heavier set woman with yellow blonde hair, a stay-at-home wife with a love of decorating and computers, on which she began dabbling in a new institution called the Internet. And Victor, who worked in construction and hard labour, was more athletic and could be seen biking or jogging with his dog throughout the quiet community. But regardless of their differences, they created an ordinary life for themselves in Hampstead, Maryland, about 30 miles north of Baltimore, settling into a ranch-style home set back off the road on a quiet cul-de-sac. As it turns out, though, nothing about Sharon's life or death would be ordinary. In 1989, English scientist Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web as a means for information sharing between scientists and institutes around the world. It's probably safe to say what he created and what Sharon Lepatka used it for was by no means what Berners-Lee intended. It all started seemingly innocent enough. In 1995, just four years or so into her marriage to Victor, and what some may still consider a honeymoon phase, Sharon went to Michael Hughes, a former webmaster at an alternative health magazine called Baltimore Resources, for advice on starting her career in the newly formed world of internet advertising for some work-from-home income. Her ambitions started off small, one business focused on selling psychic advice, another leasing 1-900 numbers and a classified writing service called Classified Concepts, charging about $50 per advertisement copywork. Residing in the typical American community of Hampstead on Indian Court, Sharon became friendly with a neighbour, Diane Safer. They bonded over their love of decorating and interior design and decided one day to collaborate and put together a 30-page booklet called Dion's Secret of Home Decorating Guide. Diane told the North Carolina News and Observer, quote, Here we were decorating our houses one day and talking to each other for advice, and we just said, hey, we should put this stuff in a book. We put it together and then we went around to ladies' groups and churches selling it. It was fun. Always looking for a get-rich-quick scheme, Sharon even had a website for her decorating side businesses that said, Home decorating secrets seen in the posh homes from the New England states to the Hollywood homes can now be yours. Never published before. Quick, easy ways to decorate your home. 
thousands of decorators will be furious when they hear that we're giving away their professional trade secrets, unknown to all outside of the industry. For the first time in print, these secrets and tricks of the trade can now be yours. Now, inspired by what the web had to offer, newfound anonymity and money, Sharon's entrepreneurial dreams would do a startling 180. Webmaster friend Michael Hughes would tell the Baltimore Sun, quote, She was really starry-eyed and taken by the idea of the internet and having a web page. She appeared to be very easily manipulated and prone to being swayed by just about anything. It seemed like she was looking for something. End quote. And what Sharon was allegedly looking for, she would find in the early days of the dark underworld of internet chat rooms, message boards, forums and websites. Once people with fetishes and fantasies turned to the likes of glossy magazine pages, red light districts or seedy hotel pornography movies for rent, the insurrection of the internet would create a fiery feeding ground for anything sultry, taboo and kinky. Hiding behind a keyboard, one could be anyone and look for just about anything and no one would be the wiser. Where the fetishes and desires came from, only Sharon knows. But it all started in fetish forums. Sharon donned the online moniker of Nancy Carlson, and one of her early posts read, Hi, my name is Nancy. I am 25, have blonde hair, green eyes, and 5 foot 6, weigh 121 pounds. Is anyone out there interested in buying my worn panties or pantyhose? This is not a joke or a wacky internet scam. I am very serious about this. If you are serious too, you can email me. Sharon would soon discover she could be whomever she wanted, whenever she wanted. She would try out different personas and names and go from a svelte blonde to a 300-pound dominatrix, playing to men looking for that sort of thing, posting, Do you dare enter the land of the giantness, where men are crushed like bugs by these angry yet gorgeous giant goddesses? Sharon also announced through a series of posts that she was a budding video producer of fetish flicks posting on alt.torture. Hi, my name is Nancy. I just made a VHS video of actual women willing and unwilling to be knocked out, drugged, under hypnosis, and chloroformed. Never before has a film like this been made that shows the real beauty of the sleeping victim. Going on to say... Let me customize your most exciting bondage fantasy for you, on VHS, to watch and enjoy privately in the comfort of your own home. A film designed by you, with scenarios of your choice. Films are shipped in plain envelopes to protect your privacy. Prices start at $100. There is no evidence, however, to show that Sharon ever made those videos. In fact, when buyers of her risque videos did not receive their order, they called her a fraud. 
Sharon posted her own rebuttal. I'm just one person trying to fill all of these orders. I don't even have time to have a life. Over the course of several months in 1996, Sharon would post more than 50 messages on the internet with themes like fetish feet, Amazon women admirers, sex bondage, and sex weight gain. One message on a cannibalistic sex group took her salacious fantasies even further. I am not interested in email correspondence or a phone feeding. What I would really like is the real thing. I am willing to be force-fed to meet my goal if necessary. I am also willing to relocate if that's what it takes to find the right feeder. I am hoping someone out there will help me out and share in the most erotic experience of their life. Allegedly, Sharon's goal was to reach 475 pounds. She went on to write, I don't want to break up any marriages, so if you're married, please don't respond to this post. During this time, however, Sharon and Victor were still married. According to Andrew Brown of the UK publication The Independent, In 1996, Brown found a communication between Sharon and someone with the handle Pero Loco. Sharon posted on alt.personals.bondage, saying, I have a fantasy of being kept completely naked, used for sex, fed well so that I'd gain weight, and then sacrificed and cooked. I'd love to hear what you'd like to do to me. Paraloco responded with, Dear Piggy, depending on your gender, we might be able to work something out. Feel free to drop me a line by email. What Sharon is referring to is known as feederism. A fetish with feeding an overweight or obese partner or encouraging them to eat to the point of severe obesity. Sexuroticism in feederism hinges on the pleasure of watching the partner eat or gain weight over time. In feederism, there is the feeder, and then there is the gainer. In this case, Sharon was the gainer, displaying an alarming notion to be sacrificed and cooked, the first hints of her death wish. In September 1996... There was another disturbing message exchange between Sharon and a man, arranging to meet in New Jersey to be sexually tortured and killed. But when she got there, he backed out. It has never been released who that man was or the details of the messages or events that transpired. But that scenario would be a telling predecessor of what was to come. It would seem that Sharon's days of selling her worn underwear evolved at a rapid pace under the free reign of the largely unmonitored world of the early days of the internet. During the late summer and early fall of 1996, Sharon would escalate her wants and desires, unbeknownst to her family, friends and husband, Victor. On a discussion group of alt.sex.necrophilia, with the topic, want to talk about torturing to death? Sharon answered the question under another alias. 
Hi, my name is Gina. I was wondering if anyone out there would want to talk about the subject mentioned above with me. I kind of have a fascination with torturing till death. Of course, I can't speak about it with my friends or family. Would love to have an email exchange with someone if you're interested. Email me. I hope you all don't think I'm strange or anything. I just want to talk about it. While Victor was working at his construction site, Sharon, glued to her computer screen, was leading a double life. So concerning were Sharon's posts about torture and death that according to the Washington Post, it caught the eye of bondage enthusiast Tanith Tyre of Berkeley, California. Tyre told the Post... She was going into chat rooms and asking to be tortured to death. For real. When Ty tried to urge the poster to stop, she learned the poster's name was Sharon, and the number she provided was Sharon's home phone number. Sharon allegedly told Tyre, I want the real thing. I do not ask for you preaching to me. Was Sharon addicted and infatuated with sadomasochism, where sexual pleasure is obtained by giving or receiving pain? Or did she suffer from autoassassinophilia, where someone gets sexual pleasure at the thought of being killed? Not everyone with this type of paraphilia wants to die, but it would seem for Sharon the risk of death outweighed the reward. Insistent to find someone to torture and kill her, Sharon eventually found someone to do just that. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Robert Glass was born on Valentine's Day, 1951 in rural Lenore, North Carolina, a small town at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains. The city has been a furniture-making company headquarters, even being called the furniture capital of the South, so it's no surprise Robert was born to a furniture-maker father 
and an elementary school teacher mother. According to the Baltimore Sun, Robert would meet his future wife Sherry while she was working the counter at the local Burger King. The then 19-year-old took his order of a steak sandwich, medium fries and a medium Dr. Pepper, and six months later he finally found the nerve to ask her out. In 1982, the two married and they had three children together. Sherry would say Robert was pleasant, hardworking and amiable, and loved to tend to their garden with the children. A 15-plus year employee of Catawba County, Robert worked in his basement office as a data clerk, programming tax rolls and keeping track of the gas consumption used by the county's vehicles. Making a little over $38,000 a year, he was a whiz on the computer, tinkering all hours of the day on his IBM compatible with 66 megahertz, 8 megabytes of RAM, a gigabyte hard drive, a computer Sherry said was the kind people would drool over. Known in the community, he was also a member of the local Rotary Club, and records would show that Glass was a stand-up citizen, having nothing more than a speeding ticket in 1988 and an expired inspection sticker in 1996. Like Sharon, Robert began dabbling on the internet. His AOL account listed a love of photography, music, and model railroads. Reminiscent of a high school yearbook, he added a personal quote, Moderation in all things, including moderation. It seems as though Robert Glass did not heed his own advice, though, when it came to moderation. His marriage to Sherry began to crumble as he spent countless hours on the computer versus spending time with his wife and family. Sherry told the Baltimore Sun that it got so that he was totally into computers. He didn't care about anything else. But he was never violent and she never saw any signs of alternative sex habits. Sure, she found some glossy adult magazines, but she chalked that up to a guy being a guy, so long as he kept them away from the kids. Did Robert suffer from internet addiction disorder, which is characterised by many hours spent in non-work technology-related computer-internet video game activities? according to current psychiatry reviews. One with the disorder could see changes in mood, preoccupation with the internet and digital media, the inability to control the amount of time spent interfacing with digital technology, withdrawal symptoms when not online, and a continuation of the behaviour despite family conflict and a diminishing social life. Even though the internet was still relatively new, Robert Glass seemed to have shown all the warning signs of internet addiction disorder, withdrawing from all family and social activities and from his marriage to Sherry. Like any suspecting wife that thought her husband was cheating, Sherry was curious to know what he was doing on the computer during every moment of his free time. 
with her business degree and from taking computer classes at the local community college. Sherry logged into Robert's computer and what she found, she told the Washington Post, was raw, violent and disturbing. Emails were saved on his hard drive using the monikers of Toy Man and Slow Hand. Gathering up the nerve and strength to confront her husband on this new side of him, one she did not know and was rightfully worried about, Sherry confronted him one night after dinner. She would tell the Washington Post, All the colour had drained out of his face. He knew then that I knew. I guess he underestimated my abilities on the computer. Sherry went on to say he had completely lost interest in her and that the final straw came when the kids asked me. My daddy didn't love me anymore. In May of 1996, Glass and his wife Sherry separated. He moved to a dilapidated trailer on a piece of land that he inherited from his father. Sherry took the kids with her, then aged 10, 7 and 6. Robert was left alone with his computer, internet access and a lot of time on his hands. Except he was not really alone. Investigators would not release exactly how Glass and Lepatka found each other in the early days of cyberspace and internet chat rooms, but the messages between the two were about sex, torture, bondage, and death. Robert had a fetish for inflicting pain and Sharon wanted to be tortured. Sharon Lepatka had a death wish. She was looking for someone to kill her through sexual means. Death while in sexual acts, albeit disturbing and dark, is unfortunately not an uncommon occurrence. Like Sharon and others in these sex-fueled chat rooms, message boards and web pages. They gamble with what is sometimes known as autoerotic asphyxiation, also called AEA or breath play. According to Michael Castleman, an author and journalist who has written about sexuality and sex research for 46 years, autoerotic asphyxiation involves intentionally reducing blood flow to the brain during masturbation by the use of strangulation, usually with rope, scarves, neckties, or covering the face with plastic bags. Castleman claims that those involved in AEA have no intention of dying. They simply want to enhance their orgasms. They typically devise self-rescue plans to stop the action if they feel like they might pass out. But sometimes self-rescues fail, often because of intoxication. Typically, first responders find bodies hanging with ropes around their necks, genitals exposed and pornography nearby. But Sharon was looking for more than a heightened pleasure. She had expressed interest that she wanted to die during these acts. At some point during the lewd exchanges between Sharon and Robert, 
the two decided to meet in person to finally fulfil Sharon's fantasy. Investigators say that the plan was for Robert to strangle Sharon during sex and how, quote, slow hand was going to sexually torture and ultimately kill her. On October 13, 1996, Sharon told her husband Victor that she was going to visit friends in Georgia. Instead, she drove her blue Honda Civic to Penn Station in Baltimore and boarded the 9.15am Amtrak Crescent train bound for Charlotte, North Carolina, arriving at 8.45pm. There at the station upon her arrival, Slow Hand was waiting. Then Sharon and Robert drove the 75 miles north to his trailer in Caldwell County that sits six miles outside of Lenore, North Carolina. The scene Sharon was whisked away to would be a plot of land littered with discarded household items that surrounded a blue and white dilapidated single wide trailer, a child's broken down swing set, a small storage shed and plenty of trees and wooded areas that concealed the soon-to-be crime scene. No one would know Sharon was even there. Sometime between Sharon leaving Maryland and arriving in North Carolina on October 20th when Victor reported Sharon missing, sitting next to her computer almost as a clue or breadcrumbs that would lead him to Sharon, he found what would be considered a suicide note. Sharon told him not to go after the one who did this to her, and... If my body is never retrieved, don't worry. Know that I am at peace. Victor also provided law enforcement with a few pages of the email exchanges he found between Sharon and Robert on her computer. Those disturbing emails were exchanges between Robert Glass, a.k.a. Slowhand, and Sharon Lepatka, a.k.a. Nan Concentric. There were dozens of graphic messages depicting violent fantasies, Later, investigators would compile over 800 pages of distressing messages between the two. Captain Danny Barlow of the Coldwell County Sheriff's Department would tell the North Carolina News and Observer that, quote, If you put all their messages together, you'd have a very large novel. It would be very thick, and I think you could say would have a very sad ending. End quote. With the clock ticking, investigators tracked down Robert through the newly formed computer crime unit. Using his moniker of slow hand, they traced it to an internet provider called Wave Communications in Hickory, North Carolina. They then found Robert and the trailer and set up surveillance on October 22nd. Investigators were hoping to catch a glimpse of Sharon or any inkling that she was alive. Instead, they found Glass going to work every day and keeping up his normal routine. There was still no sign of Sharon. 
Three days later, on October 25th, while Robert was at work, Captain Barlow was armed with a search warrant for Glass's home, and amongst the dirty dishes and disarray, they found items belonging to Sharon. They also found bondage paraphernalia, computer discs, magazines, a pistol, cameras, videotapes, and even child pornography. But still no Sharon. Before calling it a day, an officer noted newly turned over dirt just a short distance from the front door of the trailer, and only a few yards from where the broken-down children's swing set was haphazardly left. Investigators began digging, and about two and a half feet down from the surface, they came upon a human knee. When the rest of the area was excavated... They found 35-year-old Sharon Lepatka's naked body with her wrists and ankles bound with rope, and there was a nylon rope still tied around her neck. Robert Glass, 45 years old, was arrested the same day at his place of work and said nothing when the cuffs were put on him. Being charged with first-degree murder and possession of child pornography, Glass would be held without bond in the Coldwell County Jail. The next night, while preparing dinner and wondering why he had not picked up the kids for his regular visit, Robert's estranged wife Sherry would learn of his arrest. She recounted the conversation to the Baltimore Sun, saying, I said, what? My Bob killed someone? I just couldn't believe it. I never thought I'd find my husband in a situation like this. I keep trying to figure it out. But I can't. Dr. Robert Thompson, then Associate Chief Medical Examiner of North Carolina, reported that the autopsy did not determine exactly how Sharon died, but he said findings were consistent with someone who had been asphyxiated. The coroner also concluded that Sharon died on October 16th, just three days after arriving in North Carolina. Surprisingly, Robert Glass seemingly cooperated with the investigation. He said that the first few days that he and Sharon were together, they had acted out violent fantasies, and that Sharon asked that she be tied up with rope and penetrated with various objects. He also claimed that Sharon willingly had him tie rope around her neck and tighten it during intercourse. He professed to have killed her accidentally during violent sex. Quote, I don't know how much I pulled the rope. I shouldn't have pulled on the rope. I never wanted to kill her but she ended up dead. If Sharon's death was in fact an accident and not her assisted suicide fantasy fulfilled, why didn't Robert call 911 to report the tragedy, choosing to bury the body instead? Coldwell County Sheriff Robert Hitchens even said he was surprised that Sharon's body was found buried right there in front of the trailer. 
Coldwell County District Attorney Investigator D.A. Brown said that if Robert had just buried Sharon's body in the woods behind the trailer, they never would have found her. The next day, on October 26th, Superior Court Judge Beverly T. Beale issued a gag order surrounding those involved with the case. But before the gag order took effect, Glass's appointed attorney, Neil Beach, would say that it was his understanding that Robert and Sharon were involved in sexual intercourse and she accidentally died, and that Glass would be pleading not guilty to the murder charges. Doing what any defence attorney would do, Beach would also question why Glass would be so bold to bury Sharon's body so haphazardly if he was to fulfil her wish of being killed. Beach would say, If you have a plan for killing someone, you're going to have prior arrangements made in an effort of disposing the body. This wasn't the case. The death of Sharon Lepatka would make the prosecution apprehensive of bringing charges before a jury due to the bizarre nature of the taboo circumstances involved. But while the prosecution gathered their evidence and strategically tried to build their case against Robert Glass for the murder of Sharon Lepatka, Glass would sit in prison for three-plus years until 2000, when he took a deal and pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter. The sentence that carried was four years and five months. But there was also the federal charges of Glass being in possession of child pornography. The transcript of the plea deal would list six counts of second-degree sexual exploitation of a minor, images that investigators found while serving the search warrant. Those charges would see a 26-month sentence. Under the plea agreement, he was credited with the three years he spent in jail, but would serve five years of state-supervised probation and two to three years of federal probation, along with paying $5,526 in restitution to Sharon's family and $20,000 to his court-appointed attorneys. Sharon's husband Victor said at the plea hearing that the family does not believe Glass's version of the events, but accepted Glass's plea deal, saying, We just want it to end. Other relatives read a statement saying, Robert Glass did not care. He took advantage of her situation. He could have walked away. He debased not only her, but her body after she was dead. The Jewish Times said that Sharon's family now refuses to publicly acknowledge that she once belonged to them. They are not talking, and neither is Sharon's husband, Victor. Sharon's father-in-law, John Lepatka Jr., did say, though, that the family had been shattered, telling the News and Observer, Too much has come out already about this case. The respectful thing to do would be to leave us alone. This is a tragedy. Nothing more. Nothing less. The Information Superhighway 
as what the internet was touted as back in the day. Today's electronic footprints are everywhere when you have an internet connection. You can be tracked anywhere, at any time. But back in 1996, the death of Sharon Lepatka was the first time a police unit captured a murder suspect primarily on evidence from email messages. Miami lawyer and law professor Dennis Kleinfeld coined the term evidence mail that, quote, emails can and often will reveal problematic messages and communications in litigation that will make or break a lawsuit or lead to a criminal prosecution or conviction. More so today than ever before, we see emails and text messages being submitted just as any other piece of evidence would for both the prosecution and the defence. One can only speculate that in the 90s, if a jury of Robert Glass's 12 peers after hearing and reading the over 800 pages of torrid emails and messages between the two, depicting death by way of sexual torture, would see Sharon's death as an accident of a sex act gone too far, or a calculated murder. Sharon expressed that she wanted to die, and wanted Robert to be the one to take her life. Sometimes this is referred to as consensual homicide, which, according to uslegal.com, consensual homicide refers to an act where a victim wants to die with the aid of another person. It is a form of assisted suicide. In the United States, attempts to legalise consensual homicide have failed, but the state of Washington, Oregon and Texas have an exception. The Oregon Death with Dignity Act in 1994 legalises physician-assisted dying within certain restrictions. However, Robert Glass was not a physician, and to our knowledge Sharon was not suffering from any life-threatening medical issues, nor was she terminally ill. It is alleged that the death of Sharon Lepatka inspired a 2008 film called Downloading Nancy starring Maria Bello and Jason Patrick. The film is described on IMDb. Sick of her life, housewife Nancy just wants it to be over and done with. But rather than kill herself, she hires a stranger from the internet to do the job for her. But fate takes a strange turn when she meets her killer and the two fall in love. Of course, Nancy realises that love and murder do not naturally go hand in hand. While some say the film is loosely based on Sharon and Robert, you can't help but make the correlation that one of Sharon's aliases was Nancy. The death of Sharon Lepatka is a tragedy of a life taken too early. No matter if you believe Robert Glass killed her accidentally or intentionally, as were apparently Sharon's wishes, as she had been soliciting someone to kill her for months. Many people reporting on this case have cited the Mardi Gras phenomenon. That is a theory that anyone can hide behind a mask and be whoever they want to be with little consequences 
This is especially prevalent on the internet, even more rampant today with scams, catfishing and the multitude of online dating sites with phony profiles. Even Sharon's neighbour Deborah Walker told the North Carolina News and Observer, I guess some people have some kind of inner thing going on that you just never know about. I think we knew them as well as anyone in the neighbourhood. She was just like anyone else you know, and that kind of scares me in a way, to think you really never know somebody. Sharon's first business partner, Diane Safer, also told the News and Observer after Sharon's death that What I want people to know is the woman I knew was not crazy in the slightest. She was always a happy person, always bubbly even. The person who was killed was not the person I knew. It was true back then and it's even truer today. You never know what goes on behind closed doors or just who is on the other side of the keyboard. Back in 1996, even then, the Coldwell County prosecutor told the Washington Post, I don't know about this internet. I think I'm not letting my kids anywhere near it for quite a while. My, how things have changed. Robert Glass was set to be released on March 3rd, 2002. He died of a heart attack just two weeks before his release date on February 17th. Robert's obituary would be brief, saying only, Robert Frederick Glass, 51, died February 17th, 2002. Graveside service is 3.30pm Wednesday at the Glass Family Cemetery, Reverend Dewey Bristol officiating. Pendry's funeral home is in charge. Sharon's mother Magda passed away on February 11th, 2015, and her father Abraham on September 25th, 2017. And Sharon's husband Victor? He still looks to be working construction and living in the same home in Hampstead, Maryland. If you or someone you know is suffering from behavioural health issues such as internet addiction or pornography addiction, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 800-622-4357. This episode was researched and written by Kelly McGlear and edited by Brad Maybe. For more information on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening. Listening.